0: Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau.
1: They're sitting on 661
0: insurrection cases alone. Mountains of data. Potential for tips is seemingly limitless. Agents are getting grabbed from every squad in the it's office. The creation of a master list. This is the future of crime solving. Aerial surveillance. Facial recognition. All but two are unvaccinated. It's going to turn around and bite the justice system in the rear end. They want out. They're looking at whether Congress or congressional staffers have a role. What happens January 6, 2025, if lessons weren't learned? As you say, a hot mess. Well, you've seen him a lot on NBC and MSNBC because he's with nbc in the district of columbia and you've seen him with comprehensive almost encyclopedic knowledge of the january 6th investigation as it pertains to each and every one of the now approaching 700 defendants he has been the definitive source of information scouring the charging documents to see Uh, give us insights into each and every one of the defendants. And we're going to talk about January 6th, and we're going to talk about it specifically as it pertains to where the investigation is headed and what we can foresee from getting in the weeds on the charging documents. Scott McFarland is with us today. Scott, thanks for joining us.
1: Frank, I love the show. Anytime.
0: Thanks. I know it is. there is no good time to have you block off time on the calendar to do this. There's something constantly breaking, and that's why we love to see you uh, explaining what's happening to us on our TV screens. Um, Let's get into it right away. Get us up to speed on how you came to be the guy who is assigned to cover everything and anything to do with the January 6th investigation. And I mean, as they say, start at the beginning. How did you get into journalism? How did you become this this go-to guy for January
1: 6th? I've been a journalist since I was in high school. You know, I was one of those kids who worked for the local radio station because I had that that bug that I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be in news. I and mean, I started when I was. A sophomore in high school and I've never looked back. This story just happened to be at this intersection of my obscure areas of expertise. My two main beats as a journalist here in Washington is Congress and the D.C. Federal Court. Well, here we are with the largest criminal investigation in American history about a crime that happened at the Capitol and every piece of it, Frank, is going through the DC federal court. So it's just, if you have two areas of expertise and something happens and it hits both areas of expertise, it's going to be your thing.
0: Yeah, it's, um, that's how it works. And I think, I think that resonates with our listeners. Uh, when things come together, people turn to you and go, yep, didn't you didn't you do this? Or don't, don't you cover these two things? I, I recall, uh, I'm going to digress just briefly, but you know, one example in my own career was I had uh, in the FBI, I was in Miami at the time in uh, the assistant special agent in charge of the office. Um, I had just come back from a training session at Quantico, Virginia, at the FBI Academy. And it just so happened that they had done some training on an anthrax a mock anthrax attack wow. and you know because there were a lot of people getting white powder letters and you know they said hey we don't know well let, let's do this for managers and here's how you respond i come back to the office and i tell the boss hey and always jokingly to be quite honest with you i said hey listen if we you know he said how is that training i said well if we ever if we ever have an anthrax attack I, i'm gonna be your guy well there <laughs> we, it is we had one and i was uh, i was that guy. Um, get get us up to date. As we record this session, how many defendants um, have been charged so far, and how many have been convicted,
1: either through a guilty plea or some other means? As of this moment, and the number is always fluid, there are 661 federal defendants in the U.S. Capitol attack. That's not the ceiling, Frank. There are dozens, if not hundreds more arrests to come. We know From testimony from the acting Capitol Police Chief earlier this year, there were 800 people unlawfully inside the Capitol that day. So there's some more space for more charges. What's more, among the 661 charged so far, there's a number of them who never got inside, who were charged with crimes outside the building, from carrying a firearm to assaulting police with hands, with weapons, with chemical spray. At this moment in time, about 5%, 5% of those defendants have been sentenced who've gone from soup to nuts in their criminal case. About a quarter of them, a little bit less, have entered a guilty plea and are awaiting sentencing or awaiting disposition of their cases. So we got a long, long way to go. We are simultaneously, Frank, a long ways into this and absolutely nowhere. We are. We, our heels are still on the starting line in so much of the investigation and so much of the prosecution
0: this echoes uh, what i'm hearing from sources as well who are, who are uh, knowledgeable with the investigation that th- there's there's much more ahead and when i ask uh, those folks uh are we close to seeing the final numbers they they uh, to a person they say no no, we're not close, and so um, that's I, I find that interesting in light of uh, you know certain uh, a number of people on social media who are saying, oh, this is this is too slow. I can't believe they're not going to go after other people. Well, well, they are. Uh, they are. Patience is a virtue, and in terms of the patience and timing of this, what what insights are you gleaning from what you're seeing in charging documents, what you're what you're hearing in court over? Where this is headed investigatively, what are you seeing? What are the clues you're seeing in charging documents, prosecutive statements with regard to how the FBI is or is not pulling out all the stops, the degree to which uh, agents in the
1: field are just occupied on this and the seriousness with which it's being taken? So the charging documents and the court filings so far indicate the FBI is spending a good amount of its bandwidth trying to figure out who was planning, who was plotting, who was ready for action that day on January 6th, who was behind this, and what kind of organization went ahead of time. Um, We've read through some of the um, 200-page transcript of an FBI interrogation of one of the California-based defendants named Daniel Rodriguez. And a large chunk of that transcript is a pair of FBI agents based in Southern California questioning Rodriguez about what he was doing in the weeks before january 6th what he did in terms of planning his travel planning what to bring with him who he talked with in advance what he did in terms of pro-trump rallying or demonstrating or protesting or arguing in advance of january 6th so it's evident the fbi wants to know what happened in the days and hours before the insurrection began what's more we've seen these high-level defendants, Frank, these top-line defendants charged with conspiracy, charged with plotting and planning, we've seen about a half dozen of them flip, agreed to cooperate, plead guilty, and agreed to help the feds. Not one of them has gone anywhere close to sentencing yet, despite pleading guilty. There's not even a date on the calendar, which leads me to believe they are deeply in the process of cooperating with the feds and helping out. That indicates to me when you have a top line defendant who's flipped, that there's a provocative question out there. Who has been flipped? What are they offering up? Who are they offering up? That to me is the big open ended question right now. If the top line defendants have flipped, what are they giving up?
0: You know, I remember stopping in my tracks. uh, I had the TV on in the house, but I wasn't paying particularly close attention to it. But then you came on one day, this is a while back, and There was a discussion about, I think, an FBI, FD302, where you had discovered that an agent asked a question of, I believe it was an oath keeper, correct me if I'm wrong, and the question was something like, um, have you had any contact, or do you know anybody in Congress or congressional staffer? Do I have that right?
1: You have it right. Not only did the FBI agent ask the defendant if he had any contact with members of Congress, but it was also with congressional staff. Those questions are being asked. Now, now, I'm not sure if that 302 was supposed to be filed in the public docket for me to see. Um I, sometimes that happens and sometimes yeah. it happens by yeah. mistake.
0: Well, you see you were there to seize that opportunity though. Whether whether it was supposed to be there or not, we got a clue there. And I'm going to I'm going to share something with you and our listeners from my FBI experience in a massive investigation like this, even a not so massive because this is really uh, unprecedented. The intelligence analysts um, at headquarters and in, in the field help come up with some standard questions, right? Because remember, this involves virtually every single one of the fifty-six FBI field offices across the country. Maybe not Anchorage or Hawaii. I'm not all but sure. one. All but okay. one. You've got it. Right. Right. And and so when that happens, agents are getting grabbed from every squad in the office. They they might be working you know, crimes against children or mortgage fraud, but they're going to get to have to interview these folks and, and make arrests. So to make it easier for them, there's a, there's a checklist of collection questions. When you see that question asked of an oath keeper, do you know anybody in Congress? Do you know any congressional staffers? Have you had any communications with them? Somebody at a high level has said, we're asking these questions, right? Sure. And that is, that's a clue that this agent didn't just wing it and come up with that off the top of his head. It's a collection objective and they're, they're looking at whether Congress
1: or, or congressional staffers had a role. Does that make sense? If it's asked once, it's been asked again. It's been asked over and over. I, I couldn't agree more. I'll note another question that seems to be boilerplate to me based on the other FBI transcripts I've read. It, it may be boilerplate for them to ask each defendant if he or she planted the pipe bombs outside the Republican and Democratic national headquarters from that 200 page transcript of the FBI's questioning of defendant Daniel Rodriguez. They asked him point blank if he planted the pipe bombs. He said no. They moved on. The fact that they moved right on leads me to believe this may be a question they ask frequently or to everybody.
0: Yeah, although it saddens me, of course, to, to, <laughs> that they're, they're they're nowhere seemingly on that on the pipe bomb question and they're having to ask everybody about it it's extremely frustrating i i don't know if you've picked up on this but gosh i I, you know there's some dismay over the fact that the there's a lack of forensic evidence off of the the pipe bomb materials and and in part i've heard some folks say gosh i kind of wish maybe the Capitol police had not used a water cannon to disrupt the devices because you've washed away any hair, fiber, fingerprint, DNA, et cetera. Have you heard, you heard anything like that?
1: Well, I've, I've heard frustration that the tips haven't yielded anything tangible yet. I mean, nothing actionable because the fact that the FBI has had those videos, those surveillance videos circulated, then recirculated, then recirculated again. And yet to have a suspect or have an arrest wait, 10 months later, That's a big source of frustration. What's more, Frank, I think when I'm asked, this is the most underreported issue from January 6th. Take this aside. Put it in a vacuum by itself. Somebody left destructive live pipe bombs outside the headquarters of the RNC and DNC in the nation's capital, and we don't know who it is. Aside from everything else, that's just an enormous story and an enormous mystery that's not been solved. And because it's in there with all this other noise, because it's you know, glommed in there with the 661 criminal cases, with this threat to democracy, it goes overlooked. And Man, that's something that should never go overlooked
0: yeah the 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 cape whoever did this uh, and and it's not necessarily true that the person who planted them is the one who made them, which actually would be even scarier because that means there's multiple people involved um, but that capability is still out there someone someone knows how to do this, and someone's done it successfully now is it possible they're sitting in lockup somewhere i I don't know, but it's incredibly frustrating and like you said, the public appeal in this case has been phenomenally successful writ large regarding. The, the number of arrests being made, but not in, in the bombing case. I want to talk about the success of crowdsourcing, what I call the crowdsourcing of crime solving. When you go through the charging documents, when you sit in court, when you hear prosecutors talk, what what are you seeing that reflects that many of these, these people were identified because of public
1: assistance? And sometimes the prosecutors are unequivocal about it, Frank. They say as much in the charging documents that a tip from a web sleuth, a tip that was yielded because of online postings by advocacy groups or watchdog groups that are trying to deduce who these people were, were part of the case. I mean, they give credit where credit's due, that the sedition hunters helped you know, trigger a, a tip that led to this arrest, or that the posting on the FBI's website, you know, number so-and-so on the FBI's website A tipster says this is John Doe, our latest defendant. And so the prosecutors are unequivocal about it, probably because they have to explain (laughs) how they kept, you know, the cause to make this arrest and make this charge. But it's incredibly important because it's not just because this is the most, seemingly one of the most photographed events in modern history. There, there's just images of everything because everybody had their phones out. Everybody had their cameras out. Everybody was posting on Facebook and on social media, on Instagram, as they were inside. Then there are all the professional cameras and the images the FBI's released from government cameras. There's so much imagery out there that the potential for tips is seemingly limitless. And then there is this appetite Americans have for justice, for accountability, and they are eager to go through that process that FBI agents know well, going through the granularity of looking at images, trying to match it with something else. There are citizens who are hungry to volunteer for this work because they so viscerally want to get justice. Yeah, there's,
0: you know, when people tell me, hey, there's no hope, there's despair, we don't, you know, this is the end of our country as we know it. I remind them of that fact that we have People and groups out there who are responsible, really, for capturing uh, identifying these these people who tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And I and I think this is not a, happening in a vacuum. This is the future of crime solving. We we you know I I come from the, in my early days in the FBI. It was seen as the last resort to appeal to the public. It was somehow yeah. it meant that you failed as an investigator, or we can't possibly share our sensitive evidence with the public. And then you know there was a guy named the Unabomber who has worked for, gosh, 10, 10, 12 years, 17 years to capture the Unabomber, no success, squads of agents working him, and finally, out of desperation, with much hand-wringing, the decisions made to publish his manifesto, because uh, uh, maybe somebody will recognize the writing. And then, of course, it worked. It absolutely worked. And it turned out his sister-in-law and his brother identified the manifesto writing while reading the newspaper over breakfast one morning. This is now the future. The the as you said, the digital material, the the social media use, everybody, you know, thankfully not rocket scientists who decide to video themselves, record themselves inside, outside the Capitol. This is where we're going. This is this is the future and we better
1: get used to it. And there's two dynamics that are specific here. First of all, the entire nation was a victim. So they take on the role of helping out the FBI agents with the vigor and with the urgency of a crime victim. They are ready to donate a lot of their time, space, and energy towards helping out. These are motivated tipsters because the whole country feels victimized. But also, I'll note when I go through the court filings, there's an awful lot of Facebook friends from high school, a lot of scorned girlfriends and boyfriends, a lot of neighbors who didn't like this guy anyhow, tipping off the feds about some of these defendants. And some of these defendants, it may not surprise you, don't have the happiest of home lives or are not not quiet, you know, wilting violets in their community. So they've got people out there who want to tip them to the feds.
0: Let's pause for a second so I can talk about Raycon wireless earbuds. By now, you've probably seen about a thousand gift guides for the holiday season. Gifts for moms, gifts for guys, gifts for your neighbor's cousin's dog. You could study all those gift guides and shop at 10 different places. Or you could start your shopping at Raycon and get a gift everyone will use. Raycon Wireless Earbuds. Chances are, if you see me working out or just out for a walk, I'm wearing my Raycons. They're a game changer for anyone who listens to anything. Raycons gives you amazing audio quality wherever you go, whether you use them to pump up, wind down, to work, or work out. They'd be useful for anyone on your list. Even better for you, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. With their latest model, you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. There's pure mode for podcast listening, blues, and instrumentals. There's balanced mode for podcasts and rock and heavy metal. There's bass mode for hip-hop, EDM, and reggae. Raycons are available in five stylish colors. I've got red, so you can pick a perfect one for everyone on your list. With free shipping and returns, Gifting is easier than ever. The holidays are coming up faster than you think. Now is the time to knock out that gift list and avoid the last-minute shipping scramble, especially because right now, my listeners will get 15% off site-wide with code HOLIDAY at BuyRayCon. That's R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash frank. Go to BuyRayCon.com slash frank and use code holiday to get 15 percent off your entire raycon order com slash frank and this episode is also brought to you by story worth if you're like me you're always looking to give a gift that means something a gift to loved ones that makes them feel special and unique just like the relationship you share that's why I'll be giving the gift of StoryWorth. It's an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It's a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like... What's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. This is a great gift for parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, because it'll be passed down for generations of grandkids and great-grandchildren reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones no matter how near or far apart you are you'll learn new things that'll connect you even more to that loved one with StoryWorth, i'm giving those i love a most thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come go to storyworth.com frank and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com Frank to save $10 on your first purchase. Now, let's get back to our guest. So speaking of the role of technology here, take us inside the investigation in terms of what you're seeing in terms of FBI investigative techniques. Let's talk about technology. It seems like everybody and their brother had their cell phone that day and was using it. What what, are you, what can you tell us? Take us behind the scenes. Are we seeing things like uh, the cell phone towers being pinged and and subpoenas search warrants for that material? Are we seeing even as we speak, possibly FBI agents conducting surveillance or wiretaps or undercover work? What what are you learning?
1: Well, what we know for sure from court filings from the U.S. Department of Justice is that there has been, through the work of FBI agents and other law enforcement, there's been a creation of a master list of all the phones, the phone numbers that were inside or near the complex on January 6th. There is this big master list. And in some of the case filings, you'll see references to sometimes explicit, sometimes implicitly to the fact that they have this list and, you're, and this number with this defendant is associated with it. So they've worked that out. And it, likely this list would include all the numbers from people who were authorized to be on the grounds that day, including 435 members of the U.S. House and 100 senators and the staff and the police and, and the others who are supposed to be there, the custodian you know, cafeteria workers. But then there's everybody else who's on the list. And How often that list is being used, in what way, I don't know, but it's been referenced in the charging documents, so it leads me to believe it's there and it's useful. Now, surveillance. Surveillance is interesting. Surveillance is is being performed. We know that because, again, the Justice Department will acknowledge certain defendants have been surveilled. What's more, the charging documents from the prosecutors will show some of the surveillance images that the undercovers captured while on surveillance you know they're parked in a car across the street they're parked themselves on a bench down the road and the surveillance images they're using first of all in the charging documents to match the face of the defendant from his home or from his neighborhood with the face of that defendant from the cameras on January 6th on the grounds want to get a want to get a match to make sure the person in that picture is who we think it is. So we get surveillance of that person at home, and then we can compare the two pictures. Uh, I've seen a reference in the last few weeks to aerial surveillance of a home as being a tool used to make a case. Uh, I'll leave it to the FBI agents who listen. Reach out, let me know what kind of aerial surveillance you do, but I have a hard time thinking that's a helicopter because it's not exactly the most stealth way to surveil a defendant at his house. I'm thinking there's another piece of technology being used to conduct aerial surveillance. But it shows the lengths. It shows the extent of the FBI's work to surveil these defendants ahead of arrest.
0: Have Have you seen evidence of facial recognition anywhere in this picture, either in the D.C. Capitol
1: area or somewhere else a suspect might reside? It's a sensitive topic. I've seen I what I believe to be fleeting references to facial recognition, but I'd leave it to the experts on that one. That's a, that's a hot topic that I haven't gotten into deeply, but if it's available, if it's available, how much, how many of those cards do you want to show? um, Until you have to, when you go through the justice department's process. Yeah,
0: no, I, and I'm with you on that. It is a, it's a sensitive topic. Uh, No one wants to talk about it. It's a, because it's, it's a great, it's a great technique, first yeah. of all, um, and and similarly, this whole topic uh, involving this uh, geofencing uh, and search warrants that uh, are sometimes, by the way, abused by local police departments, um, where they ask for everybody's phone anywhere near this bank robbery. Uh, okay, you know, and we've Congress is trying to get their hands around that in terms of legislation, um, but
1: yeah, it sounds sounds like all the stops are being pulled out um, that, that can be used. The phone forensic work is interesting. I'm glad you pulled on that thread because one of the reasons we're not getting trials in January six cases this calendar year, the reason why this, the earliest trials will be in 2022 is because the evidence is so mountainous. The amount of evidence is so voluminous that the feds have to go through, that they have to ready for defense attorneys, that they have to prepare for trial. It's a process, it's unprecedented. They're not there yet. That's why trials haven't begun. And one of the reasons it's so voluminous, Frank, is it's the phone devices. They've got phones from defendants and they've gotta go through them all and all of the records, this is orders of magnitude. The amount of evidence in phones versus evidence years ago that'd be available to agents. Um, They they gotta get their hands around it. And there's another dynamic too. There's for example, 10,000 hours plus of surveillance video from the Capitol complex. They have to go through that. They have to log it, see what's relevant, see what's exculpatory, see what has to go to defense attorneys. If you and I sat down, Frank, right now and started watching 10,000 hours of video, we wouldn't be done until 2023. This has to be ready before trial. So you think of all the phone devices, you think of all the video, you think of all the tips and notes. There's been a quarter million tips at a minimum. I don't know how they get this ready for the earliest trial dates which are January and February 2022. I think that's optimistic. I think that's going to slide and that's a problem for a lot of these defendants because some of these defendants Frank are in jail awaiting trial. Well, they yes, want sh- out.
0: You've shared you've shared with us on a daily basis how badly they want out and the conditions that they're facing uh in there. But yeah, it is it is a necessary public service to continually remind Our listeners, respectively, viewers and listeners uh, who become impatient, the volumes, the mountains of data that are challenging law enforcement and prosecutors right now. I mean, just grabbing, before January 6th ever happened, there was a backlog in the FBI's forensic computer laboratories throughout the country. Um, that was seemingly insurmountable to begin with. If you just grab one person's cell phone, you're looking at gigabytes, I don't know, maybe terabytes of data in one person's device and now and multiply that across all of these devices and clearly it's all hands on deck. Clearly this work is not just Washington-centric. They're farming out um, from the FBI side, they're farming this workout to, to field offices. Yeah. Oh, you have some downtime in Honolulu? Great. Here's, here's some laptops and iPads. Did I assume they're using contractors for this too, that they would contract a lot of this
1: workout to specialists? I
0: I, I think it's a safe assumption. I can't imagine how they would do this. Uh, in anywhere near a legally yeah. uh, permissible time frame without contractors. And similarly, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, I think we're seeing even uh, the, the prosecutors uh, from everywhere coming in and defense, public defenders being tapped uh, from across the country. I think you mentioned... a. I saw something recently. There's a, a public de- defender in Las Vegas who's or someplace sure. who's coming to, flying in for a, a Washington defendant.
1: There's only about a dozen federal defenders in the Washington D.C. federal court system. That's that's not going to handle 661 defendants, many of whom need federal defense. Um, plus, the federal defenders are helping to stand up this innovative evidence sharing system. They're the ones helping you know the the feds do the logistics on getting evidence sharing. So they're, they're they're taxed with that task in addition to you know defending. Americans from prosecution. So they're bringing in federal defenders from other parts of the country. They're bringing in assistant U.S. attorneys from other parts of the country to help. Um, I, I think there was a case where both the assistant U.S. attorney and the public defender were from Puerto Rico. They were available. They came up and they're, they're arguing at least part of the case. Uh, but that goes to the logistics here, Frank. The D.C. federal courthouse is accustomed to having, by my reporting, 250 to 350 criminal cases a year. They are sitting on 661 Insurrection cases alone. And that doesn't count the backlog of other criminal cases that formed during the pandemic when court operations were restricted. And oh, by the way, court operations are still restricted because of COVID. They have difficulty convening grand juries uh, in in the same volume or frequency to which they're accustomed. They have limited time to get inside courtrooms. A lot of this is happening virtually and the cases keep piling up. And sadly, there are still firearms cases coming. There are still child exploitation cases coming, immigration cases coming. And the feds won't acknowledge this on the record. Um, They won't take the question on the record. But it's a lot of defense counsel and a lot of former prosecutors are telling me they're just swimming in it. This is a choke point because all these cases are funneling through the same courthouse.
0: I suppose we should not be surprised that the same presidential administration that tested, challenged, and taxed our institutions uh, throughout his his uh, tenure has now left us with a, a, a court case that is
1: challenging the entire federal justice system. There was, there was a granular moment today, Frank, just today, the day we're taping this, that I haven't reported on, so let me share it with you. There's a defendant by the name of Brian Mock, who is accused of assaulting law enforcement that day. The video exhibits from his case are pretty powerful. He's been in pretrial detention since his arrest. He's in the D.C. jail. He has grown so frustrated with the delays of getting his case before a jury or to get his case into argument phase that he's now defending himself. He's serving as his own defense lawyer, which is a questionable decision for his (laughs) legal future, but he's made that decision. In court today, he argued that he wants to go to trial now. He wants to go. He has been in pretrial detention for 11 months, and he's about done with it. And he wants to move ahead. And he wants to use his speedy trial rights. He wants no more delays. He wants to have his day. And the judge said, in the interest of justice, we have to delay. You don't have the evidence. You don't have the discovery. You're not ready for trial. We're not ready for trial. And despite Brian mocks, please, he will have to wait some more. And that's where we are. Where defendants are ravenous for their day in court, but the court is saturated, the docket is saturated, the schedule is, the evidence isn't ready, and this is a side effect, perhaps a predictable one, but taking part in the largest criminal investigation in American history, you got a lot of co-defendants, you're just one of them.
0: Boy, I can I I can already see the appealable issues here. Uh, yep. You've got somebody saying, "I'm not waiving speedy trial. I take me to court right now. I'm gonna let's go." and and the judge saying we we can't go and by and, you know and then i could see a, a defendant claiming well because I, I represented myself i had ineffective assistance of counsel and yeah. so i don't yeah. you know yeah I, I don't i don't have the legal answers on on where this is going but it's uh, if everybody waived their uh, speedy trial act i don't know all at once you I mean, know
1: he's not the only one defending himself and this is a, a question i would lo- i would ask an fbi agent if i had a chance to talk to one but there's another defendant who has used the language that is associated with sovereign citizens, um, who has invoked being a sovereign citizen, says court does not have proper authority over her or jurisdiction over her, and she's been fighting and defending herself. And because of the outbursts she's made in court while defending herself, because of her inability to follow court orders, (laughs) um, perhaps because she's acting as a sovereign citizen, she's been locked up in pretrial detention, and she's been there for a couple months. And I always wonder this, Because I know what I face as a journalist, but when you're dealing with sovereign citizens, I wonder how much trolling, backlash, or extra paperwork you have to deal with as a federal agent when you're investigating sovereign citizens than otherwise. Because I know as a reporter who's covered sovereign citizens, I get a lot of unsolicited feedback from the sovereign community and from that sovereign because that's how a lot of them roll.
0: They're, you're you're right there. They they are kind of trained up in challenging and taxing the system, loading it with paperwork and and using everything they think is at their disposable. Yeah, they they'll hit the law library if they can and yeah. and. Yeah, it, it's a massive headache. I mean, just on the streets, a, a, any police officer who has the misfortune of pulling over a sovereign citizen for a traffic violation uh, has a massive headache by the time they're done with that interaction. It's a it's a mess. You 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 referred to, uh, or at least uh, I did. One of us referred to the conditions inside uh, that DC jail, and you've been careful to point out in your reporting that there's kind of two different things going on there and that that, these January 6th defendants aren't necessarily experiencing the worst conditions that exist there. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: The D.C. jail is a huge complex. There's no state prison in the District of Columbia because it's not a state. So the D.C. jail is what exists in the District of Columbia for all defendants, local and federal. There's two parts to it. There's the old central detention facility, which is from 1976, been around a long time and has been for generations the source of complaints, and concern about its substandard conditions. There is a newer central treatment facility, which is desirable for the inmates. They all wanna be transferred to the newer central treatment facility. So the old central detention facility is so substandard that the United States marshals are evacuating dozens of their federal inmates or detainees from the central detention facility, reporting in their inspection, standing sewage, water problems, retaliation, food issues, Um, they just deem it up to federal standards. So they're evacuating a few dozen of those detainees to move them to a federal prison complex in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Then there's the central treatment facility, the newer place, the newer joint. That's where the January 6th defendants are. Why they're there, we haven't been told, but we do know, we have been told, they're all together. They're in their own separate wing. They call it the Patriot wing. The staff calls it the January 6th wing. They sing the national anthem each night, They are all together. Um, One defense attorney characterized it as cult-like. One of the inmates in the January 6th wing, a man by the name of Robert Geeswine, who is among the many challenging for his release, has argued that he's worried he'll be radicalized the longer he's there, because all they talk about is January 6th. They're all like-minded. They're all of one political persuasion. Now, Robert Geeswine is allegedly affiliated with the Oath Keepers. And he's worried about being radicalized inside the D.C. jail. Um, Many of them, if not most of them, are seeking their release. One of the things they argue, Frank, is that when they're in the central treatment facility of the D.C. jail, they're not given haircuts, shaves, access to family or meetings or attorneys. And then we come to find out, according to one of the filings from defense lawyers, that all but two of them, all but two are unvaccinated. And being unvaccinated makes it difficult for the jail to give them full services, It's a hot mess. And ultimately, it's shedding a bit of light on the conditions inside the greater D.C. jail, which generations of district residents, people of color have said, welcome to the club. This is what we've been living with for years. It's about time somebody paid attention to it
0: yeah I, I if there's any positive about what you just said it's it's that point that it's shed it has shed light on the conditions writ large in the DC jail that have been there for forever. Um, if there's a negative side, I, I'm now getting even more concerned than I originally was that somehow the the treatment of these defendants and their conditions and lack of access uh, disturbingly even to perhaps legal counsel which is very odd or at least visits um, is going is going to turn around and bite the justice system in the rear
1: end in the in the form of somehow uh, in a small uh, way it already is frank in a small way it already has and i didn't mean to interject but one of the one of the highest level defendants a man by the name of christopher warrell who had been in pretrial detention for many months accused of assault that day accused of these high level charges He was released a few weeks ago, and the jail's warden and the jail's director were found in contempt of court for their handling of Christopher Worrell's medical needs. He's got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He has a number of injuries, and he wasn't getting the medical care he's supposed to get that you're required to give when you incarcerate someone. So it's already complicated his prosecution because the prosecutors no longer have the leverage of pretrial detention. The prosecutors have now to deal with other defendants who want the Christopher Worrell treatment. They want to be released, too. They've got a cut and a bruise or, you know, an injured shoulder. And it makes things more litigious. It makes it fills up the docket. It just complicates matters. So in in a microcosm, Frank, it's already complicating the prosecutions. Mm
0: what's your understanding of the thinking behind putting them all in, in the same unit? What, what's that all about?
1: Jail won't comment on the record, but a number of people I've talked to in DC law enforcement and a number of defense lawyers believe it's, they're trying to protect the January six defendants potentially from others, mm. uh, potentially from retaliation from other inmates, protect other inmates from the January six defendants. I mean, this yeah. is um they think this may be a very difficult cocktail if you mix those things together, but I mean, the growing number of defense lawyers saying this is not working. Having these guys all together in one unit is bad for them. It's bad for the jail. It's not. So you can argue it round or flat, but it's a problem. And the the bigger issue, though, Frank, is they're not going anywhere anytime soon for the reasons we just described. We're not going to have trials next week and we're not going to start releasing everybody in pretrial detention because the jail is has issues on the other part of the complex. So this is a problem they're going to have to figure out how to deal with.
0: So what what part of this gives? What part of the system has to give here? Are, is there a, should, should there be a look at a far more national uh, scope to this? I know we're bringing in prosecutors and defenders. I know every FBI agent is working this around the country, but is there some other way to do this that would get justice uh, faster and in a more reasonable form?
1: I mean, if, if, if they want it to be faster, I think there's some number of um, cynical people who would say, just plead guilty. You want this over with? Take a plea, we'll wrap it up. I mean, the federal government is known, notorious for the leverage it wields in federal prosecutions. It has all the resources at its disposal. This is another piece of leverage, I suppose, prosecutors have over defendants. When there's no trial dates being firmly set, when you're up, <laughs> unhappy with the conditions in the D.C. jail, there is a way to end this, right. plead guilty. Right. But that's not, that's not a solution to a problem. That's just more leverage for the prosecutors. That said, the prosecutors, the FBI, I can't. I mean, they're taking they're going to take increasing heat the longer this takes from the public, which is thirsty for some accountability. They want yeah. to see cases disposed of and disposed of with firmness. That's a, that's a concern I, I see developing. And I,
0: I, you know you got to be very careful when you offer a plea to somebody because you, you, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If yeah. they're in miserable conditions um, and they want out, they, you run the risk of somebody pleading guilty to something they didn't do. However, if you've got a photo of them doing it, um, do you really need to examine their entire uh, device now or Can you get to it later in the event that you might find something that's even more serious or points upward? Can you structure the plea deal to say, we're going to take this plea from you now And we're going to reserve the right to come in later. There's got to be
1: some solution there. And we should always say it just just as a formality. Pretrial detention is not for leverage, nor do prosecutors seek it for leverage. But defense lawyers will tell you it is leverage Mm -hmm. (laughs) against a defendant. And it's just the reality of it. Um, Pretrial detention is for those deemed to be a danger to the community. And I'll tell you something that's interesting, Frank. When the judges are trying to resolve whether somebody's a danger to the community, some number of them have cited Donald Trump's words as one factor making a defendant potentially dangerous, saying, almost in so many words, that Donald Trump's continued baseless allegations about the election or his hinting over the summer he may come back into power before 2024 is a dynamic the court's considering when deciding whether to ease restrictions of release or to allow pre-trial release. So Donald Trump's making life harder for some of these defendants who want a little bit of their freedom back.
0: Mm. Well, you know, I've I've often, and we've used the word radicalization in in this episode, but I, I often talk about the similarities between what we see in the January 6th defendants and what I saw in international terrorism in terms of the radicalization process and the fact that the threat of radicalization still exists and that if you let them out and they're still exposed uh, to yeah. to the, the former guy, as they call him, and and the current uh, GOP folks who are engaged in what I believe is radicalization. This is, a, as you say, a hot mess. What do we, as we wrap up, what should our listeners be looking for? What what are some of the coming signs, indicators, things to be attuned to that might signal something else? What do, what do you keep what do you keep your eyes open for as something
1: that's potentially significant as a as a clue? I think the pressure on all stakeholders in these prosecutions and in this investigation is going to raise exponentially on January 6, 2022. When that anniversary hits. And we would look back and say, we haven't had a trial start. We look back and say, where are the who's going to get charged with sedition? Who's going to get charged with some type of insurrection, which may or may not be even possible? You know, where's the, the, the people who funded this? How are we a year into this? And we are still in the low-hanging fruit phase where they're taking plea deals from the lowest of low-level misdemeanor defendants. How are we a year into this and we don't know? Who paid if there were people outside paying? Whose idea was it to breach the Capitol door? Whose idea was it to go in there and and, and start a riot? If we don't have the big questions being answered on the one-year anniversary, I think people's heartburn is going to rise. I think people's skepticism that this is headed to a good and fulfilling place is going to rise. I think that one-year anniversary is noticeable. And I'll tell you something else. I'm looking at the calendar. That one-year anniversary they got a full docket that day, I and mean, they, they have defendants from top to bottom on that one-year anniversary. Watch for that. That gets an inflection yeah. point for the angst of America because what's happened so far hasn't satisfied a lot of people. That We've seen people plead guilty to unlawful picketing and get a couple weeks in jail or two days in jail. Your jail sentences measured, Frank, in days and weeks, not months and years. And these top-line defendants who have pleaded guilty, where are they going? Where is that headed? Do we have the guy who dropped the pipe or the girl who dropped the pipe bombs yet? Do we have the person who erected the gallows and hung the noose yet? We need big answers to big questions, I think, as a broader country by January 6th, if we want people not to have increasing anxiety about where the investigation and prosecution are headed
0: yeah and that date should be circled in red on the calendar of uh, law enforcement throughout the country as well as it becomes a security yep. scenario if um, and a potential flashpoint if the frustration level grows uh, with extremists in the country as well and let's not forget there are midterm elections coming. Um, And if uh, indeed uh, the GOP seizes control of the House and makes that select committee go away, the criminal investigation takes on even added importance as as well.
1: What's more, think about January 6, 2025. The federal judges keep using the word deterrence. They have to ensure proper deterrence through their sentences, through how they adjudicate these cases. If there's not proper deterrence, there's going to be growing alarm about what happens January six, 2025, if lessons weren't learned by the people involved with January six, 2021. So watch the anniversary. I feel like we're, it's, it's going to rise in the consciousness of Americans back to where it belongs, this issue. And I'm not sure they're going to like the progress report yet.
0: Well, your insights are invaluable, appreciated. And uh, we we're far from over in covering this. And I know, thankfully, you are far from over in covering this. Our guest this episode has been Scott McFarlane, reporter extraordinaire of all things, January 6th in Washington, D.C. We'll keep looking for you. You keep keeping us informed. Scott, thanks for joining us. Let's do it again, Frank. Thanks, man. All right. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Season 3 premiere of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Next time, you'll want to listen in as I sit down with former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe for a candid and unprecedented one-on-one.
1: The Bureau is written by Frank Fogluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill, with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent, creator owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit MSWmedia.com.